You're listening to Leadership Powered by Common Sense with your host, Doug Thorpe. Here's Doug. Well, hello again, everyone. This is Doug Thorpe, and you're listening to another episode of Leadership Powered by Common Sense. Today, I've got a guest who is herself a successful entrepreneur. She got into a business and has grown it uh, substantially. I'm going to let her uh, share a lot of that story. She happens to be local to my market in the Houston area, but um, her name is Jackie Fisher. Jackie, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so it's a little bit of a tradition here on this show. I like to ask my guests to first give us a little bit of a backstory about your journey into into business and, you know, sort of what led you to get into the thing you're doing now. And then we'll talk more, more about what that thing is. But, uh, yeah, give us a little bit of that backstory. So my dad was a serial entrepreneur, and I think he followed – what most serial entrepreneurs uh, do, not what we see on TV, um, which is get startup money and sell a lot of money and get into another business. He just basically failed that business over and over and over again until finally something worked out. Um, he, um, he was 50 years old, no college education. His uh, furniture business had... Um, uh, closed down. He was manufacturing furniture in um, a warehouse over off 290 with no AC in the summertime. It, it was a hard job. And I like to say, while he didn't have a college education, he had a PhD. He was poor, hungry, and driven. So um, he had a junkie delivery truck and a stack of bills and um, a family to support. And he put an ad in the green sheet, which kind of tells you how long ago it was because I don't even know if they have green sheets anymore, but it was kind of like, <laughs> it was good, like Craigslist before Craigslist uh, was there. And so he put an ad in the green sheet and advertised uh, moving furniture and um, the rest is history. That was 38 years ago. In 2000, well, circling back, when he first did that, I was 12 years old and it was him and he hired some guys. And my mom was making minimum wage at the public library. We were living off of her income, which was hardly a living. And uh, I would get home from school at 12 years old. And my job was to answer the phone and book moves. And he had a, a sales script that I had to follow. And uh, that, was, that was my job. And so um, in 2002, he'd finally started making some decent money. But um, like I said, he was 50 years old. So um, by the time that happened, uh, I think um, he, he he hadn't saved enough to really retire. I mean, you start saving that late in the game. It doesn't really leave you a big runway. And so um, he had a massive stroke. And in 2003, he asked if I'd come in and help him out. I was an art major um, at University of Houston. And um, I went to help him out. And it was supposed to be for a few weeks. And a year later, I was still there. And uh, I realized two things. One, I like business. Two, I do not like working for my dad. <laughs> uh, we butted heads. He was very old school and he was really tough. And I think HR, I probably why he didn't work for a company is he would have been an HR person's nightmare. Um, and uh, I quit my job. So then um, from there, 
Um, about a week later, the drivers found out that I, I had um, quit my job and they signed a paper and it was a petition and they took it to my dad at a Monday meeting and they said, we've all signed this. We want you to bring your daughter back to run the company. So I think they, they had probably had enough of that too. And my mom and dad later, many years later, uh, they wrote their name on that piece of paper and they gave it to me and I had it framed and it is sitting right there. Oh, and wow. so every day when I get to work, I can see that and I know why I'm here. I'm here to serve these guys. Um, so uh, I went to nine different banks to get financing. I couldn't get financing. Um, I kind of was thinking the banks were sexist at the time, but now that I'm mature, I look back and I realized they would have been crazy to give me $3 million. <laughs> so uh, I borrowed the money from my dad. He, he uh, told me he would loan me the money and I paid him back over 15 years um, with 6% uh, interest, which right now that seems like a deal at the time. It wasn't, wasn't that good of a deal. It was all right. But, um, and so that's, that's how I got started. I had no business education, um, but I was lucky to have really good mentorship and um, a business coach. And uh, I later went back to Rice University and I got my MBA. So now I've, uh, the rough edges have been rounded out. <laughs> well, uh, classic story and, and often the journey that many entrepreneurs take because they grew up in the entrepreneur family and call that good or bad. You know, I've, I've often told many, many of my listeners have heard me say this. I grew up the son of an entrepreneur mom and a single mom, hardworking, and she quit her day job when I was still in elementary school to go start a business. That's how passionate she was for what she wanted to do. And it worked. It, uh, you know, she and she didn't have the schooling for it either. She just had a, a knack and a, a dogged determination to make it work. And it did. And um um, she had the same journey trying to go to banks, but she did find a banker that uh, she she wasn't asking for $3 million. And she was asking just for a, a much smaller sum to float some materials she needed to buy. And, uh, you know, it was the classic buy the materials, get paid and pay the bank and back and forth and back and forth. And nowadays we in banking, we call that a revolver, a revolving line of credit. And, um, uh, I don't even think they had that title for it back then when she did it. But anyway, so what's the name of the company today? Three Men Movers. And Three we're in Houston, Dallas, San Antonio, and Austin. And we do about 40,000 jobs a year. Wow. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. And and where was it when the paper was issued and you came oh, back yeah. as, as the manager? Yeah. So we're doing about... Um, I don't know how many moves we were doing a year. I'd have to look that up, but we were doing about 3 million in annual revenue a year and we're doing over 40 million now. Wow. And that's how many years? Uh, it's going to be 20 years next year. Okay. Um, and, um, we added three different locations since I came on board. We added a storage pro product as well. My dad passed away in 2016, but I was fortunate enough, like he went through kind of a grumpy phase the first couple of years. Um, and people who are um, serial entrepreneurs, they have this desire to build and grow things. And when that's kind of taken away from him, that was hard for him. So he went through a little grumpy phase 
But then he got to see the company flourish, and I think that made him feel better about his decision. Good. Yeah. Well, sorry to hear about his passing, but again, uh, uh, I was talking to a guest yesterday who was a neurosurgeon, and we we kind of facetiously joked, you know, none of us get out of here alive, so it, it's going to happen Absolutely eventually. Not. <laughs> Absolutely not. And we just have to be grateful for every day. Yeah, absolutely. So talk about some of the things that you experimented with or or key decisions you had to make along the way to, you know, try to take the company in the direction you wanted it to go. So that led me into writing my book. Um, I, I think because I made so many mistakes and um and I was at the time when I first started, I didn't have any business experience. And it was so bad that like when I first started, I noticed that we weren't answering the phone when it rang. Like, and I was I was like, you know, it could help if we would answer the phone and in, in the first couple of rings. And all of a sudden our sales started going up. And I thought, wow, you know, I'm making business decisions. This is like, I must be really good at this. But I was so far in over my head. And that's where the mentorship came in that, that really helped me. But I noticed in one of my uh, business groups that some businesses were growing and some were not growing. And um, and it, it seemed so counterintuitive because the businesses that were the largest business and, and, you know, the bigger your business is, the more customers you have, the more employees you have. And we all know with more customers and more employees means more problems, right? Because I've, I've heard business would be easy if you didn't have customers or employees. So true, right? Uh, so I noticed these guys um, would be able to sit in a meeting all day and listen to um, uh, great speakers and work on strategy. And the guys with the smaller businesses that were getting stuck, they were out in the hall on their phone and their phone was blowing up and, and people were calling them from the office and they were too stuck in the operations of the business. And so um, it, there, was, there was just so many commonalities between the companies that grew and the companies that stayed the same. And uh, I just decided to write a book about it and a guidebook of how to grow your business. And I put everything in there that I wish I would have known that would have saved me a lot of headache. And um, and I put it in a book and created a guidebook with exercises and step-by-step -step processes of how to get your business in, in a way um, that you can scale. And I think a lot of times small businesses, when they look at scaling, they're their number one thought is I got to make more money. And that's true. You know, I'm not, I'm not going to take away from that. Definitely. We want to make more money, but um, it's like building a skyscraper and just looking at the top of the building, you want to create a big foundation underneath that building. So that skyscraper can grow and building that foundation is crucial to scaling your business. Absolutely. And I see in your background there, you've got another framed image there, The Growth Paradox. Is that the book? Yeah, that's my book. My publisher sent that to me. That's my book. It came out yesterday. Um, and so you can order it on Amazon or Target or Barnes & Noble. Um, so it's it's out and it's, it's uh, exciting and nerve-wracking all at the same time. Well, for those of you that are listening in audio, there uh, there is an image on the front of the book. It's uh, it's a classic sort of business graph. 
of an arrow, but as as the initial climb, there's a dip and then another climb. And uh, I'd, I'd like to talk a little more about that. I, I too, have a thesis uh, about the, I call it the paradox of success. And it's a principle I observed in my days as a banker. I watched companies grow up and at some point they hit kind of an invisible wall and some companies broke through the wall and continued their success. Others crashed and burned when they hit the wall. And philosophically and morally, that bothered the heck out of me as a banker. It's like, why does that happen? Why? Because these people seem good. They seem hardworking and driven. Kind of like, you know, you described your dad, you know, worked really incredibly hard, but, um, you know, still needed some other ideas. And I, as I began studying that and what, you know, I do now in my own business coaching, I realized the common denominator was the owner founder. That was the, that was the pivot point of, of answering the question whether or not the business was going to successfully get to that next level or not. So I, I don't want to, maybe I pack too much in that, but you, you tell me more about the premise on your book. No, I think there's a, a couple of things involved. And one is um, certain businesses roll into being a lifestyle business and that's okay if that's what you want, um, but comfort breeds complacency. So uh, an owner gets comfortable and they're like, okay, we're good. Um, but that stagnation, um, a lot of times that comes from fear of kind of um, failure, that dip, that dip that you see up in the picture. Um, when you grow your business, you have to take on risk. And when things are going smooth, you know, you start getting hesitant about, do I, do I want to take on risk? Um, and the fear of failure prevents you from taking on the risk because sometimes things get a little ugly before they get better. And you've got to be willing to to embrace taking risks, let your employees embrace taking risks. And I think that's a very scary thing, um, especially when you started a company and you grew a company to where it is now. And like, do you really want to add more expenses to take the next level of growth? Do you really want to fire somebody that's really not getting you there? But, you know, is the lesser of two evils of the, the, you know, the unknown of getting somebody that might be worse than the person you have, even though the person you have isn't working out. I mean, those are those are real risks that owners have to make. And sometimes they they just kind of want to stay where they're at. And that's what slows them down. I agree with you. And I do want to accentuate that point that for some who are in the entrepreneurial game, you know, creating a lifestyle business is fine. They're, we're not anything we're going to say here is in no way condemning that or looking down at that. That's a choice and that that's a viable choice. And if that's what you want to do, great. Um, but if you're the kind that wants to continue the growth trajectory <clears throat> and create some asset of, of greater wealth uh, that might be your own big payday, you know, down as you start looking toward retirement or your own end game, um, there are choices and, and you have to make. And I often, uh, you know, big business, when they look at growth, if they drew a graph, it's it's this kind of gentle sloping line, and you know they're they're going from you know 
1x to 2x and everything. But in small business, that line is giant stair steps. Yeah, like a shirt. Yeah. E- even even if uh, in in your game, the moving business, for instance, if you're a company, you're you're operating one truck and you're doing okay, and now you've you've kind of max capacity. You've got demand that outpaces the availability of that one truck. Your next choice is buy another truck or or lease or obtain another truck. But there's a big jump in capital spend to get there. So in the book, we call it a J curve. And every time you add another research source, it, the the expense is going to hit before the payoff hits. So if you hire another salesperson, you're going to have to start paying their, their salary until they they're able to get the sales to, to come in and, and meet and surpass their salary. And I think um, you have to be careful you don't bite off too many J curves at once. And you have to think about how do I lessen that J curve? Um, and so there's there's a graph in the book where um, the expense hits and you see a drop in expense. And then there's across the, the um, horizon line is the time. And so if you can minimize that dip, um, you've, you've um, got to profitability a lot quicker. And so a classic example of that is Uber. Um, if you're a taxi cab, cab company and you want to um, hire more taxi cab drivers, you have to get a token, you have to interview people and you have to purchase a cab and get the guy trained and put them on a cab. Well, Uber's made it so you or I could say, we want to drive an Uber and we get this app and we download it and we're driving and we're immediately um, running and operating, and they've shrunk that J curve. They're like the masters at doing that. Same with Airbnb. Airbnb uh, used to have to build a hotel. Now, just somebody says, "Oh, I'm going to rip my room out," and they have extra hotel rooms. So they've they've mastered that J curve. And I think one of the things, Doug, I listened to one of your podcasts. Uh, somebody was interviewing you, and you were saying how as a company grows, the owner has to grow with the company, and I. I was I was really struck by that because I I talked about as the company grows you have to do backcasting and you have to um, put every every resource you have on a list and figure out um, how those resources need to grow with your company. So if you're going to double the amount of product you sell, what kind of warehouse do you need? You just signed a ten year lease and you're going to double it in five years. How are you going to get out of your lease? I mean you've got to like plan for that. And then you also have to plan the people component. And I realized I should have added the owner to that chart because I added the employees. Um, now, I did say that I have a section in there about mentorship and, and all of that. But um, with employees, you've got to bring your employees with you as you scale. And you have to have a plan for every single employees to grow with you. Um, a lot of times people have maybe a small business, a $3 million business, and they go and they look for somebody to run the books and records for a $3 million business. And maybe they take somebody who ran a $2 million business because that person wants to kind of grow their, you know, and their um, experience and take on a bigger project. So you hire this person that's only ran a $2 million business, but your growth plan says you're going to get to $20 million in 10 years or whatever. How, how are you going to bring that person with you? It's much better to hire somebody who's ran a $20 million business to help you get there. Um, or if you have people who are already on your team, and this is a failure that I had, is I didn't prepare them for growth. 
And so the company outgrew some of my employees, which was really sad. And, and I had to let really good people go because I didn't have the proper infrastructure to bring them along with the company. And since then, we've changed that. But the, the, those were mistakes that I made earlier in my career. But I like the idea of putting the owner on that backcasting, like, okay, if my business is here, what do I need to learn to run a company of this size? Yeah. Yeah, and, and what I was talking about was the uh, the notion of moving from founder to CEO and, and whatever is in your head as the founder of a business, particularly in a startup mode, you there are things you do and it, it's, it's perfectly justifiable, logical, practical, uh, and important. But as the business grows, the demand on you as the leader of that business changes. And, and I know there's some popular teaching that challenges the idea of if you're the founder, you need to ask yourself, well, am I the visionary or the uh, integrator? And, um, you know, that comes out of the Geno Wickman EOS world. And, and there's some practical truth to that. And there's the point being there's nothing wrong with owning the business as being just the visionary and hire somebody to execute the day-to-day -day and, and go integrate the ideas and make your ideas happen. And, and my point is, and my experience in the banking world and beyond has told me that too often owners aren't able to make that pivot. They, they just, whether it's ego or whether it's just their own limiting belief, they're afraid of letting go and letting others do. And that's one of the most critical decision points an owner needs to make is to, and, and the best example of that is the owner that one day is willing to say, you know, I need to hire a CEO. And I, I, I've realized I'm not the guy to be the day-to-day -day CEO of this company. I need to hire somebody to do that. And that often is a very, very challenging reality. I, I had another guest on my show last year that was uh, part of a three-man team that had built a very successful restaurant chain in California. But the three of them were idea guys. It just happened. They all were collectively kind of in the same genius zone. And they were successful in creating some scale, but then they hit the ceiling and, and they all looked at each other one day and said, we need a CEO. None of us want to be the CEO of this beast that we've created. So they went to market. And to your point, I think at the time they were operating at about 40 million and they found a guy that knew how to operate restaurant chains at the, at the 60, 80, and 100 million level. And they hired him and gave him a lot of growth incentive opportunities. And he did just that. He took it all the way up to a hundred million. Another thing that is an issue when you're a visionary is there's not an idea that you don't like. I mean, you just, I mean, you get so excited and I get juiced up about ideas too. I'm very creative. I love coming up with great ideas. And what sometimes can happen, and which is great for a startup, like you were saying, but as you're scaling your company, you come into the office, you're like, I've got this amazing idea. And you pull your team together, you tell them this idea, they get excited, they start working on it. And then about two weeks later, you have another idea. So you pull them off the original idea and you put them on this idea. 
And you keep doing this over and over again until they're spread too thin, they're overworked, they, yeah. they can't get things done. So visionaries, you almost have to put a gag in their mouth for a little bit. Like what I, um, and I used to do that and we were like chasing things left, right and center. And every, I mean, for me, I run that way. So I like going in 10 different directions at once. For your average employee, I mean, that that's just, cruelty i mean it's stressful you know they don't get to finish one thing you're pulling them to do something else and visionaries run that way that kind of fuels them that excitement that newness and so when you have one of those great ideas like these three guys and they probably have 10 more restaurant chain ideas in their head you have to challenge yourself to not bring up those ideas until quarterly meetings um, and, and say, okay, I'm going to write these ideas down. I'm going to put them away and I'm going to come back to them. And a lot of times you come back to them in about a month or two, they're not as cool as they were when you first heard yeah. the podcast or went to some speaker and, and brought that idea in. And then you work that into a written plan for the team and you allocate the right resources and you, you're just more strategic about bringing those ideas to your team. Because if you don't do that, you become the flavor of the month club and, and people think of you as flaky. And I fight that all the time um, because I, you know, I, I, get a lot of good ideas. Well, I think they're good. And I want to share with the team and I'm like, okay, stop. And so trying to kind of shut your mouth and, and just kind of let the team work on the projects they're working on now, but putting it into a backlog, um, that's really helpful. Yeah, I agree. And the other thing you touched on, and I, I want to expand on this a little bit, is the idea of as you go through the phases of growth in a company, you've got people on your team that are important parts of that chapter in in the company but as the company continues to grow you realize that person doesn't have the capacity to grow with the business and that becomes a very gut-wrenching and painful choice for the owner to say you know call it what it is try as you might to develop them and bring them along they just couldn't do it um and and you got to make the choice to let them go, and that I, I hear that time and time again, you know, with with my client companies. It is the hardest thing. It's the hardest thing to do, and it's terribly sad. Um, in the book, I have like a little uh, matrix that has attitude and aptitude, and it's so easy when somebody has a bad attitude and a bad aptitude, so they can't do the job and they're grouchy about it. It's so easy. I mean, you get rid of them, the company throws a party. Um, but when they have a great attitude, but they just can't do the job, um, that's really hard. It's really, really hard. Um, but it's a decision you have to make because if you're trying to win the Super Bowl, you don't keep C-level players on your team. Um, and, it, and also, I feel like everybody deserves to feel successful at work. And if you're keeping somebody because you like them, but every day they're not living up to their expectations and they know it. I think that's unfair. I think that they need to find a job where they fit. And I've had situations before. And I think, you know, there's a tendency to think of good employees and bad employees, but I like to think of it as fit. And I've had a, a guy here before. He was operations manager. He was not a good fit for our company. He went to another company and he just sailed up in, in their ranks and he did a phenomenal job at another company. If I would have kept him at my company and, and um, 
was just dissatisfied with his work all the time, that would have really hurt him. But he was able to find success else, elsewhere and it worked out for him. And I'm, I'm happy for him. But, you know, you just have to be a good fit for the company, the culture, um, and see the vision that the, the owner is trying to achieve. Well, and I agree, and that's uh, it's a good point that, you know, it is about fit. It's not about being right or wrong. It's just different, and you, you've got to, as the owner, you, you've got to make that call, and it can be an incredibly tough and painful call to make. Uh, I, I don't, I've lost count of the times I've been advising an owner, and, and they'll say, yeah, but that person's been with me since day one. You know, they they and you know it's it's gut-wrenching it's tear-jerking but the reality is you know you have a role you have a need and maybe you've inadvertently promoted them up into a role that now that the company's much bigger is a really critical role like kind of like chief of operations well if if they're not if they're not able to perform at that level you you can't keep occupying that seat with that person you've got to make a change and it's not fair for them as i as i mentioned before but it's also not fair for the company because it, you can't make a decision based on one person and that's that's what i've learned with the company if i make a decision based on the entire company and what's best for the company usually my de decisions are are well made but if i make a decision for one person that that hurts the entire company, that's not a good decision. You're hurting everybody because we, we're on a profit share program. I'm hurting everybody with their profit share because I choose to keep this one person on board. And then sometimes there's situations like we had a situation where one of our employees had a, a medical crisis. They were a valuable member of the team. Every, and they weren't going to be able to perform their job for a long time. And we talked about it and everybody was just on board, like we are going to take up the slack for this person, this person, you know, and we just all rallied around. But that was like a different, different deal. You know, there was an in, hopefully an insight in this person coming back. Everybody was rallying. But in another situation where it's a person's just not doing their job right and everybody has to pitch in to do the job when they're just not doing their job right and you're keeping them on your team. They say the most demotivating thing for A players is being on a team and getting paid the same amount as a C-level player. And you're doing your job and you're looking over and somebody else is not doing their job and they're getting paid. And that's just not fair. Right, right. No, that's a that's a good analogy in, in classifying that. And, you know, people show their stripes. So, I mean, they do. And uh, I have often spoken, uh, even on this show here, in, in my look back at many, many years in, in business and leadership, the sad reality is people fall out in about three large groups. You've got your A players that are going to, if you can identify them, get them in your company, you're, you're going to have reliable rock stars every day and they're going to be motivated. You just have to give them a little bit of guidance and they take off and run with it. They get it. You've got the middle group that is generally reliable, but it's kind of nine out of 10 days they're on point, but then they have that one day that's just whack. You know, you go, what, what happened? What's, what's going on? You're scratching your head, but nonetheless, you've got a, a body of work that's generally reliable. But then you got that third group that, is they almost from day one they show up they don't really want to follow the rules they don't really want to you know punch the clock on time they they don't want to 
comply or, 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 you know, perform. And as, as a manager, you spend a lot of time working with those people, a ton of time. And it's so frustrating because the time you could spend mentoring the B's to A's or giving that a voice to the A's, you spend dealing with poor performers and I'm all about getting them off, off your team as quickly as possible. And I think that is what separates good companies from bad companies. I think, um, bad companies and we know like, um, standing in line at the DMV, they just have bodies in the chairs, right? (laughs) They're just like, you got a pulse, you got a job at the DMV. And there's a line outside the door and everybody's frustrated because nobody probably wants the job because it's so disorganized. Um, So you've got some bad companies that they just want, they call it meat and seats. You know, they just want bodies and chairs. And then you have good companies that want people who have um, the capability to do their job in their chair. But then what I think makes a company great is not just if the person is capable, but they match the core culture and they see the vision. Because you can have some really capable people um, that just maybe have a bad attitude or they don't have the same uh, values as the rest of the company. And when you're willing to get rid of um, a person that has great performance, but they have a bad attitude, then I think your company really starts taking off. Yeah. So speaking of that, what are some of the things you have tried and and done well, Jackie, with your company culture, you know, building the culture that you really want there at the business? I think a lot of times we we read articles about culture and I feel like Google's kind of ruined it for us because we we immediately think of Google and we think of yoga and, you know, buffet tables and free massages and nap rooms and stuff like that. But I think the important part of culture is value. Uh, the values that we have, the values that we share. And when I say somebody like fits a culture, I'm not talking about high school, like my culture isn't like a bunch of jocks or a bunch of, you know, the old, the old school nerds jocks back in the 80s. No, I have a wide variety, a diverse group of people, but we all share the common values. And in order to keep that, you have to get people um, who don't share those values off your team. And the value should be so strong because everybody shares that same set of values that it's not the owner that points those people out, it's their coworkers. And that person actually feels uncomfortable being on the team. So uh, part of our culture is we have a very fast pace. We, we move at a very quick, quick pace. And so if you're on our team and you're not moving at that pace, you're gonna feel it. You're gonna feel uncomfortable. And um, I like to say you've got to put the cult in your culture. So it, it does feel a little cultish around here sometimes, um, but it's just part of who we are. Um, and, and all of those things like, you know, uh, yoga and snack time and all of that stuff, they're fun. And I think they're great to show employee appreciation. But at the end of the day, some of this stuff can be kind of gimmicky. And what people really want is they want to be respected. They want to get paid well. And they want to feel like they have some kind of purpose at work. Yeah, I think that's so true. And 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 being able to connect that sense of community. And uh, uh, Seth Godin, I, I think, wrote the book called Tribes. We we're as human beings, we're tribal in nature. We we seek to gravitate toward a group of 
like-minded and it's all about the values it, it's what is the value that you believe in and what resonates in your in your heart and mind if 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 an owner can establish that and then attract people that do gravitate to that naturally one i i think it's safe to say you really can't train culture you, you can't have work i mean you can you can have a meeting and you can share the values you can have a discussion about the values and the more that people do gravitate to that to your point you know others that don't fit are going to feel the pressure and and they will maybe self select and and opt out and move on but um and the values that, have to come from the owner as well um it's funny because Enron had a set of core values. And if you read their core values, it seemed like a pretty cool place to work. Um, but then what the owners were doing were, you know, in contrast with those core values. So core values aren't the things that are written on walls and put in the fancy memos and stuff like that. You really have to live and breathe them and make um, make actions, make, uh, make decisions based on those values. Um, every day. So when you're, when you're at a business meeting with your team and somebody says, Oh, this happened with a customer, you go back to those values. Okay. Well, what do we do in this situation? Well, these are our values and that guides us. I had a business mentor who was this really, really kind man. And he always saw the value in everyone. And I'm a little bit, I, I'm not as good as that. I'm like, Oh, that guy's kind of a jerk, you know, but he's like, Oh yeah, but he, he brings this value. So he was mentoring this guy who was um, very unethical and he was running a company who was this super unethical guy. Um, and, you know, he never shared the name of this person. So I don't know who this person was, but anyway, he was always trying to kind of stiff the customer out a little money, uh, cut benefits. And he was trying to make money by, by just kind of squeezing here and there and doing these kind of sneaky unethical things. And pretty soon in his company, the people who were ethical didn't like that. So they hopped ship. And so he was left with the people that were okay with screwing customers over and, you know, dealing with their, having their benefits stuff. And so he's left with this like toxic, toxicity that he created. And then one time he found out that his accountant was stealing money from him. And he had created that culture where that, um, that happened. And I know at our company, this was before we had a computer system. The guys had to write on the contract and they had to do the calculation and stuff. And some of our guys would do the calculation wrong and we would go to enter the stuff into the computer. And it was like they overcalculated the move charge by $15. And I told my accounting office, I, I never forgot that story. And I said, okay, write an apology letter because customer didn't know. So write an apology letter to the customer and send back the $15 and a check and send it back. And we we did that before we had, now they just drop down, they do the hours on the computer. But we did that because I, there was two points. Number one, it was our values not to cheat anybody out of any money. But number two, I was sending a message to my accounting department, we don't cheat. We accidentally took this customer's money, we don't cheat. And I was hoping that that would stick with them. And, you know, they would they would be an ethical group of people that wouldn't cheat in any other aspects of what they were doing in their accounting department. So it's a message that you send as an owner through the company 
based on your values. And if you've got crappy values, you're probably going to have some team members with the same values you do at some point. Yeah. Yeah. I interviewed an owner the other day and I, I have already, I had a chance to take a tour of his business uh, a couple of months ago and he, um, it's a plumbing company in Denver. And, uh, um, the guy has just as an owner just has some amazing ideas and it's, it, it, it's all about building the right culture. And one of his many practices, he actually has quarterly meetings with his whole team and he gets them to create personal vision boards, you know, and, and, and then they share, they, they kind of present their board to the group. And so it does a couple of things. Number one, it helps align with the overall company values because there's definitely, and he is the owner presents both the company and his personal, he, he does both. Um, and, but and, and shares it in the group and and so it it gives that visibility of you know who's on the boat with me here you know what what are they thinking what are they looking at and he one of his favorite stories about that he hired a new plumber and the first time they went through this iteration the only thing the guy could think about was buying a bicycle for his daughter that was his sense of a vision oh. personal vision and the owner said, man, we're going to crush that this week. <laughs> he said, let me show you our incentive program, you know, and he he laid it out for the guy. And sure enough, within a week, the guy had earned enough extra bonus money by the spot incentives they had to. And it was all, you know, to your point, done very ethically in the in the consumer's eyes. But the owner was, you know, willing to share in his prosperity with his people. And, and this guy got the bike within a week. And and then it was like next time they did the board, it was a whole lot more, a <laughs> whole lot more thinking went into it and a whole lot more uh, uh, excitement and expectations. So um, it, it it all does. It it comes down to there. there's many different ways to build that culture, but it has to be a, a living, breathing organism that is talked about and worked on every day. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Jackie, I think we're about up on time. I really appreciate you sitting in and sharing this with us. If folks are interested in knowing more, do you have a, a personal link or website or anything to get to? How, how's the best website. way? I have a website, uh, JackieFisher.com and it's J-A-C-K-Y-F-I-S-C-H-E-R. And then uh, my book's available on Amazon. Great, great. Well, we will have those links in the show notes, folks, as always. And one last time, Jackie, thanks for sitting in. Really appreciate it. Thank you it. so much for having me, Doug. All right. Well, best wishes to you and the happy holidays as we go forward here, uh, wrapping up the new year or the, the old year for the new year. And folks, as always, I'd like to remind you, if you are listening on your favorite streaming service, we do have a video version of this over on YouTube, channel by the same name, Leadership Powered by Common Sense. Hop over there, check out the archives, and leave us a comment. Let us know if there's a topic or idea that we haven't covered that you would like to hear about. Or if you're interested in being a guest yourself, uh, feel free to drop me a line. Let me know that. So with that, we're going to say goodbye. Go out there. Make it a great day. You've been listening to Leadership Powered by Common Sense, hosted by Doug Thorpe. If you would like to know more about the coaching and advisory services he provides, visit DougThorpe.com.